When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abul Samad. And we're closing out 2016. We've got a few things to talk about, many of them autonomous. Uh, but there's some other stuff in there as well. Uh, some some businessy stuff and some uh, car show things because we've got Detroit coming up. But uh, first, of course, we will talk about what we're driving. What do you have this week, Dan? So I've got the uh, the Volvo S60 Cross Country. Um, I, I have some things to say about this car. So let me just say some things dan yeah well i mean i've been a long long time volvo owner i currently have none i've left the fold as it were but uh, i owned volvos for many years um and the last one that i actually bought was the the last two we bought them sort of as a pair uh was a couple of first generation s60s um so this cross-country uh, the S60 cross country, this is a T5 all wheel drive. It reminds me a lot of my old first generation S60 T5. Um, this is a 2016, so it has the five cylinder with that familiar, unique rhythm. You know, it's pretty punchy power delivery. Uh, performance is not a problem with this car. Uh, it's got the six speed auto, which is pretty smooth and mostly stays out of the way. Uh, all of that is going away for 2017 because they've replaced it with the new um powertrain so the t5 now has uh the four cylinder uh turbo four cylinder turbo yeah um i was playing around on the website um so that's the 17 is the it's the turbo four the power is roughly the same the torque is actually uh, i think a little bit better with the turbo four it has an eight speed auto so efficiency should be a little better um but you know generally this is the same. I was actually surprised that they for 2016 they still had the five cylinder around. Um, 
And, you know, nostalgia aside, I feel like Volvo is not going to successfully create a niche where others have failed with the cross country T5 all wheel driver, just the cross country itself. Um, part of that is the car's fault. And I'll get to that in a second. But history tells us there's just no appetite for jacked up sedans, whether they're premium or not. And it, it's I don't know. I mean, like, I, I can see how you could make the, the business case for this. But uh, I mean, it's people love jacked up trucklets. Sure. Uh, that comes at the expense of sedans. So it doesn't make much sense to cross the crossover with the car. That's kind of a very strange breeding experiment, and it, it hasn't ended well. Uh, not only that, history's already shown that it's a hard sell. Uh, the AMC Eagle was a, I, you could call the Eagle the originator of this kind of vehicle. And I found out that actually the Eagle has some lineage traceable to the Jensen Interceptor FF, which I didn't realize, which I thought was very cool. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Eagle was kind of like the the Ur crossover, if you will. Yeah. You know, before, long, you know, probably what, about six or seven years before the first Audi Quattro uh, came out. You know, you had the you had the Eagle. Yeah. Uh, and then, like like you said, you know, the, the there was the Jensen. But, you know, that was such a low volume vehicle that chances are, you know, most people have never even seen one or, or much less heard of one. Right. And so the the FF in the Jensen FF was Ferguson formula and the Eagle was really the first mass production car because I wouldn't call the Jensen a mass production car. Uh, the Eagle was the first mass production car with a Jensen FF uh, drivetrain. So it had the, the transfer case and everything. I, got, I always thought it was pretty similar to uh, Jeep's Quadratrack. I actually I assume they're the same thing. I may be wrong, but. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think the Quadratrack, if, if I'm not mistaken, evolved out of what they did. I think they did it on the, the Eagle first and then evolved that into the Quadratrack. But it I, was I could be wrong. Yeah, too. I mean, I don't I don't recall off the top of my head, um, but it's it, very early all wheel drive. It's basically, um, you know, it created this this kind of vehicle and the the wagons were very successful, but uh, for the entire production run of the Eagle from, I want to say like 70, when did the Eagle come out? 78? Uh, or maybe so, it was 80? Yeah. I forget. Um, uh, I, th I think it was actually about 78 or 79. Yeah. So uh, 79 to 87. Okay, right. I was going to say up all the way up to 86. So almost 10 years, the wagons obviously crushed it. Uh, when I think of AMC Eagle, I think of wagons. Um, and it created a new segment, and that segment endures to this day. Uh, Subaru was the next automaker of note to take a serious run at the SUV crossover sedan. I mean, there were a couple of little things in the late 80s. There was actually, uh, and I think they were sort of group B <laughs> efforts like we for the weirdest thing uh, uh was that there was a Ford Tempo all-wheel drive in the late 80s early 90s um but that wasn't a very serious effort yeah um, but I, I mean that one wasn't I don't that wasn't really jacked up that was just you know an all-wheel drive you know just an extra essentially an enhanced traction version of the Tempo yeah you know, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't really you know it didn't look any different from uh any from a front-wheel drive Tempo uh, it wasn't intended to look, you know, kind of off-roadish. Right. Right. And so the next next really off-roady one that I can think of is the the, the Subaru, uh, the three-box version of the Outback, the SUS. And that also failed to excite many buyers. And so now, now we have Volvo. They're going to give it a shot. Uh, the cross-country 
wears a name the s60 cross country wears a name that's been borrowed from the the original cross country in the late 90s that's you know pretty well respected and and you know even now you say volvo cross country people know what you're talking about uh so you know it's it's handsome well, and you know the cr- cross country you know basically you know gave its name to volvo's current you know later generation of suvs you know i mean that's that's why they're all called you know xc90 xc60 you know the xc is short for cross country right and so there's that lineage and i think what they're trying to do is actually pick up a you know get a little bit of shine off that um and you know it's it's a good looking car it it you know jacked up sedans look pretty decent you know i mean this this has a nice presence it's semi-awkward from some angles just like the original eagle sedans were um and you know it's got extra trim to suggest skid plates i don't know if it actually really does have skid plates uh and of course there's there's all-wheel drive pretty sure it doesn't (laughs) yeah i mean other than whatever they they put in there normally uh and you know like it's all fine but there's there's problems with the car itself and volvo has sort of shot themselves in the foot twice you know this is a hard concept to make stick and the s60 is probably i mean i know they're using what they've got but this is probably the worst thing they could use for this um because when you think about it what they're trying to do is create another sort of little cuv niche and the the middle initial there the u that means utility and there's just not much of that in the s60 you know it's it's plenty luxurious the materials are good the design is nice the ergonomics are kind of classic volvo that's all all good but the s60 has also always had a really tight back seat and this generation is even smaller i think than the the generation before the one that i had um the the trunk is definitely tiny you know it's shockingly tiny um and no car with all condition all-terrain pretenses should ever wear 19 inch wheels with 45 series (laughs) tires like that's just i was like what the hell um it should go the other way you should have you know smaller wheels more sidewall but whatever i mean the the stand this one has upgrades too i mean you know like like you said i mean the 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 operative word there is pretenses you know right it's it's meant to kind of sort of look like it can go off-road but you know you know that especially any buyer that's going to go for the sedan over the wagon yeah, is never going to take this thing off road. I mean, you know, worst case scenario is you're going to drive it in snow or on yeah. a gravel road. But, and, you know, the funny thing is it, jack up the ride height. The, the extra ride height does pretty much all you'd need for a little bit more uh, terrain capability. Otherwise, it's fine. You know, um, the front wheel drive would be fine in most most conditions that you're going to get it in. Um, uh-huh. And. and it certainly looks good. It looks very good. I will say that it's as a style exercise. It's fantastic. Um, the ride is is kind of stiff. I you know I kind of blame the 19 inch wheels. Um, the standard wheels are 18s. I think they'd still be just as stiff. Um, and you know I, I feel like for me Volvo comfort is is pretty subjective. People either love the seats or hate them. I like the seats. I hate the head restraints because they're they're very aggressive and they they sort of push me into a weird posture. Um, the then it's not not adjustable so that that kind of sucks some cars have figured out how to make those adjustable um i find actually in a lot of press cars i actually take the headrests out turn them around put them back in <laughs> i don't um, so stop messing with me um that's the, I, I realize i'm opening you put myself them back up. when you're done no <laughs> i'm sorry guys <laughs> i always forget uh I'll, I'll, I'll be more diligent i promise um you know, it's visibility is OK. It's not great. You know, it's 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 certainly not a, a real utility 
player. Um, it's a it's a fine enough car. You know, it, it uh, drives pretty well. It handles decently. The power is good. The responsiveness is good. Um, inside, you know, the census infotainment system is is still a little bit tweaky, but I like it better here than with the touchscreen and the XC90. Even if you give up some capability, I don't even know if you do. Um, but I never really wanted for more functions. Um, Volvo does this thing with their buttons on the center stack if you don't have that giant screen that they're rolling out across the, the model lineup um where all the buttons are tiny and they're very closely spaced and so i had to hunt and peck for things i wanted in kind of a distracting way um maybe that's more it looks, looks kind of like a like an early 2000s era nokia feature phone yeah that's exactly well and I, that's you know you can actually dial the phone it's got like a button it's just got like a full phone keypad in there right <laughs> you know? yeah i'm looking at the photo of it right now um, I think that's probably part of like Dan getting old. Um, and you know, so those tiny little buttons are hard, hard and I'm not, you know, not as used to the cars. So, you know, there's like nav, I kept looking for, you know, map and it's the nav button and phone is TEL. So you, there's some, some learning curve to the car. Um, and once you acclimate to it, it's probably okay, but it's still, there's a lot of buttons and they're really close together. And that's, I know I, I, harp on needing buttons but this is not the best way to do buttons <laughs> right yeah no I, I i agree with you and you know i think um that you know this is probably the last time we'll see a layout like that in a volvo you know the, yeah. the s6 the 60 series the s60 and the v60 you know i think that they're they're you know they're, they're gonna they're obviously gonna be next up for renewal you know now that we've got the the xc90 and the s90 and v90 uh out in the marketplace um you know, this one will probably see an, a next generation of this based off the the same SPA architecture that's under the 90 series, probably, you know, starting before the end of 2017. And, you know, it'll probably have the big 11 inch touchscreen like the uh, like the 90s do. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty when you think about it, this is a pretty old set of hardware and they've done a really good job of, of kind of keeping up. But um, yeah, I mean, this is this is I board think, based. I th- yeah, I think, you know, I think this might actually be based off of like the second generation European focus platform, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, I believe mistaken. it's it's the EUCD, yes. if I recall. Um, yeah. Oh, so, okay, so it's probably uh, the the older Mondeo, uh, like the, the late 2000s Mondeo platform then. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's right, but that's not the same thing that's the uh, the second gen Fusion now? Um, it, the, sec- the, the Fusion that we have today was derived from this but it's it's pretty heavily revised so this was the starting point for the fusion that we have today um you know they the rear suspension is completely different on the fusion it's got a different suspension layout from what's on this um so you know this one's a little bit smaller uh than the current fusion in mondeo um and um i mean it was a good platform yeah it's certainly decent car it's just yeah and, and i'm sure you know for the you know, especially for the standard S90 or S60 uh, and V60, it probably works pretty well. Yeah, it's still like, you know, the issues that I've identified are just issues with with the car at this point. You know, it's it's a little tight. It's got a tiny trunk. Um, it, it doesn't quite measure up to BMW or Mercedes competition, um, which is I, I feel like that's a little bit of a stretch, too. But that's where Volvo is trying to stretch itself, too. Um, you know, I mean, I've always liked Volvos. I've, I really wanted to like this car, but I feel like beyond reminiscing, there's just nothing 
here in the S60 cross country that isn't done better elsewhere. I mean, the, if you wanted a Euro style jacked up thing, you could get the golf all track. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's going to be, obviously it's going to be a wagon, but that's going to tick all the boxes that this car does actually have more utility and be less expensive. Um, so, you know, even you could even get a Buick Regal, <laughs> which is <laughs> like about the same size, possibly has a little bigger backseat and trunk and drives actually very well um, because of its Opal roots. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the Regal was, I think, supposed to be a Saturn and it has, you know, there's some sob back in there and stuff like it's I was shocked about how well the Regal drove. So you can again, yeah, it's, you can it's got a lot, it's a got a lot of, of good DNA in it. Yeah. So it's this is not the only game in town. Um, it this one prices out to forty eight three ninety um, on the the sticker. I mean, it's a, it's a nice car, but I I don't know. I mean, I I was frustrated trying to live with it. Um, you know, my my kids are eleven and eight, and even they were like, "Ooh, it's tiny in the back seat." So, uh, <laughs> you know, and we're not big people. As yeah. Chris Shunk pointed out once. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, that's my um, long dissertation on the S60 cross country. So as much as I wanted to like it, it's a great style exercise. I don't I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to finally make the crossover sedan stick. So what are you in this week? Um, well, I'm, uh, I'll get to that in just a second. But, you know, I just wanted to reinforce what you said uh, you know, earlier. Uh, you know, I think every manufacturer that's kind of tried this route, you know, where they've done, you know, the jacked up version of a, of a car, you know, where, where they've done a sedan version, it has not been a success. I mean, you know, you mentioned Subaru, they've done it a couple of times now with the, the legacy and uh, you know, doing a, a, an out, essentially an outback sedan. And I think that, I think the last one actually was called the outback sedan rather than the legacy outback sedan. And, you know, none of those have been successful. Um, you know, Everybody that's done this successfully, it's always been based on the wagon body style because that's something, you know, it's got the utility. It's closer to, you know, an SUV or a crossover, you know, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that Volvo would keep trying this and I, I'm skeptical that they will do it, you know, on the next, when the next generation model shows up. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I guess I lament is it, there's been this loss of just the plain old all-wheel drive versions you know you can't get the v70 or s60 or i get you know back in the day it was the v70 all-wheel drive and then they, they killed that and so you couldn't get just the regular one with all-wheel drive you right with, without the speed. added ride height you were you know just to get the right. traction enhancement right and i mean honestly the traction enhancement it's it, it's a little bit of a you know it, it's it's not really necessary i guess is what i'm trying to say like you equip the car properly like you you'll be fine in, in most conditions. There are times where you need it, but overall it's, it's a sales tool <laughs> more than yeah, anything I mean, else. Fr fr frankly, you know, you'd probably be better off just getting an extra set of wheels and some winter tires yes. uh, than, than spending the money on the all wheel drive. And it'll probably save you on gas too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and other, you know, and, that, and that's not something, yeah. And that's not something that's unique to, um, to Volvo. I mean, for, for pretty much, you know, almost any of these vehicles, uh, with all wheel drive, you know, you'd probably have better success with um, just with winter tires. Yeah. You know, the really the only the only all wheel drive sedan I can think of that's had really any kind of success, at least lately, has been the um, the Charger and the Chrysler 300. Um, and those are 
very understated, and I think that they've had success for different reasons. They're not trying to be crossovers. They're just big sedans that you can get with all-wheel drive. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Right. We'll see. Good luck, but I doubt it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. All right. So speaking of all-wheel drive. And, um, yeah, I, pseudo trucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my, mine at least has some utility. I'm driving the, uh, the, the, new, the 2017 Cadillac XT5, which is the successor to the uh what was previously called the srx you know now now using cadillac's uh, new nomenclature new um more european style nomenclature with uh ct for the cars and xt for the uh for their uh utility vehicles um so you know this is a mid-size uh luxury crossover uh based on uh it's, it seems to be you know kind of a hybrid of their um, compact midsize, um, uh, crossover platform, you know, with the, uh, um, uh, the, the, what's, you know, what has previously been called the Theta platform, which is the Equinox and Terrain, um, and then, uh, the, the Buick Envision. Uh, so this one's a little bit bigger than the Equinox and Terrain. Um, it's got, uh, two engines available, the 3.5 or 3.6 liter, uh, V6 or, uh, the two liter turbo, um, that's a that's the, a pretty heavily re- revised 3.6 too, right? Like it's yeah, not- it is. Yeah, it was it was, it was pretty pretty uh, heavily done over uh, last year before they launched the uh, the CT6 sedan. Uh, so it's got uh, cylinder deactivation now, so it can shut off a couple cylinders under light load conditions. Uh, the one I'm driving uh, still has uh, an eight speed transaxle. It's uh, it's an Ison built transaxle, and that's. Uh, they haven't announced it yet, but that, you know, that's that's the same transaxle that they've used in a number of the other higher output um, applications over the last couple of years with a lot of the, the two liter turbo applications like in the Malibu. Um, and it's it's largely it's going to be supplanted by the nine speed, the new uh, nine speed that they developed with Ford uh, that we talked about a week or two ago. Um, so probably for 2018 models, it'll, the nine speed will go in there in place of the eight speed. Uh, you know, the, the vehicle itself, you know, the design is very clearly, you know, an evolution of the, the last SRX, you know, it's, and it's a, it's a good update, you know, it, you know, it's, it's definitely got the, um, you know, the, the, the same kind of styling tweaks that we've been seeing on the cars over the last few years. And it's certainly in a segment that Cadillac needs to succeed in, um, you know, based on where the market is going right now. I mean, their, their, car, their sales of their cars, you know, especially the ATS and the CTS have really been struggling over the last couple of years as the whole market has been flooding towards crossovers, uh, especially in the premium segments. You know, BMW, Mercedes, Audi, I mean, they're all killing it and, you know, with all their various sizes of crossovers. And right now, you know, the XT5 is Cadillac's only crossover. You know, they have the XT5 and then they have the Escalade uh, at the at the big end, you know, with the body on the old style body on frame. And, you know, probably within the next couple of years, we're going to see um, a new smaller Cadillac crossover uh, to go up against the likes of the BMW X1 um, and the Audi Q3 and, and Mercedes GLA, and then a larger one, uh, probably based on the, the new Lambda platform, you know, that we've already, the first one that we've seen so far as the, the 2017 Acadia, uh, and then at the Detroit auto show, uh, GM's going to show off the, uh, the new Traverse and, you know, there'll almost certainly be a Cadillac version of it this time around, um, uh, you know, in, in order to, to be competitive in the marketplace, you know, 
there's a lot to like about this vehicle. Um, you know, it's not perfect, uh, but you know, overall it drives really well. It's, it's quiet. Uh, it's got plenty of power. Um, you know, 310 horsepower from that V6. Um, it's, it's smooth, uh, great ride quality. Um, you know, it's the, um, uh, driver assist systems work really well. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not exciting, but then again, you know, most <laughs> of the, most of the competitive vehicles, you know, in the segment really aren't that exciting either. You yeah, know, so it, it should be competent on the yeah. road. Oh, it's very, it's very competent and it, yeah. it, it's well put together. Um, you know, I think the, the one thing I noticed today, especially when I was out, uh, went out somewhere, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different materials in the interior. You know, there's the, the one I'm driving is the, the premium model. Um, you know, so it's got some, uh, Alcantara, it's got some leather, it's got some aluminum, um, you know, some textured aluminum, um, some, um, piano black plastics, um, yeah, so does that it, does that just bug a, you or is that like it because I remember when the Equinox came out too, that was one of like and and we were both at Autoblog at that point. Um that was one of John Ness' complaints was like there's just so many materials. It's like, well, but are they put together well? So I guess that's my question. It's, like, it, it's it's put together well, and I guess I can't I wouldn't say it really bugged me, but it's just it's something I noticed. Um it just seems um kind of less coherent you know, than some of the other vehicles I've driven recently, like, you know, compared to the XC90 I drove a few weeks ago, you know, I think in terms of the, the material selections, you know, that one, you know, and, you know, the BMW X5 is another one. Um, they're, they just seem to be more consistent with the material selections they use. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not that it looks bad, but it's just, uh, you know, I, I noticed it and it just, you know, all of a sudden it clicked that there's all these different materials. Um, and I, I wasn't quite sure why, you know, I think, I think, you know, they probably could have dropped the, um, the Alcantara, um, and just gone with leather, you know, wherever there was the Alcantara and, you know, just use leather in those places. Um, and it would have been probably a little bit better, a little more coherent design. Uh, but overall the, you know, the, the shape and the execution of the materials is really good. Um, so I can't really complain about that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good. It's, it's a really good vehicle. Well, and uh, it's, you know. it's a little smaller than the SRX. If I recall, like it definitely looks smaller. Um, <laughs> no, it's actually, I think it might be slightly smaller, but it's, it's pretty close to the same size, you know, um, w you know, where there was a big change in, in size was when they went from the first generation SRX, which was based on the old Sigma platform from the original, right. uh, CTS, uh, to the, the second generation, the previous one that came out in 2009, um, you know, and then this one is pretty close to the same size. I think it might be slightly smaller, but not not dramatically. So, I mean, there's there's plenty of room in the back seat, uh, you know, and plenty of cargo space, you know, in the back. I mean, this is strictly a two row. There's no no three row option available in this one. So it's, you know, it's smaller than, you know, the GMC Acadia I was driving last week. Um, but, you know, definitely. I think it's bigger than, you know, for example, the Audi Q5, um, you know, uh, and probably the uh, the BMW X3. So it's it's a good size. And what's it stickering at? Uh, you know, I uh, let's see. I, I think this one is about uh, f around 50 grand. Around 50. So equipped that way, do you feel like it's competitive with something like an X3 or, or like a Q, Q5? I mean, those things get really expensive. 
really quick. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I think so. You know, I think with a, you know, probably with a different um, package, a different trim package that, you know, maybe, you know, didn't include the Alcantara, you know, and, you know, I like, it's not that I don't like the Alcantara, but, you know, I think, you know, just leaving that out and going with, you know, with something a little bit different, um, you know, I'd, I'd say it's probably, I'd say it's pretty competitive. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly got, uh, like I say, it's got good performance, um, great ride quality. Uh, you know, I would, let's, let's put it this way. I would probably, if I had to choose between this and say a Lexus RX, I would choose this over the RX, um, you know, against some of the Germans, um, might be a little bit tougher competition. I would, I would probably take this over. I would definitely take this over like the Mercedes GL or the, uh, GLC, yeah, they're uh, screwing which, with their names now. Confuses me. Yeah. So the yeah the GLC is you know probably the 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 right the the closest competitor to the the XT5 or maybe maybe it's the uh, GLE. I don't know. Uh, one of those. But I, I would definitely take it over the GLC. I think I think it's a better looking uh, vehicle than the GLC. Uh, yeah. So it's it's good. It's got it's you know it's definitely worthy of consideration for anybody that's in that market for you know a midsize um luxury crossover I, I think it i think they should definitely take a look at this one um you know the um uh you know the controls uh from the last generation you know they had a lot of a lot more of the the touch controls on the center console and they got rid of that uh so now the only touch control on the console on the center stack is just the volume where you just slide your finger back and forth uh underneath the the touch screen to Which adjust the volume still, still not good still I mean, actually, actually it work, works pretty well on this one you know okay. yeah i mean you know to just to you, know, you just put your finger on there and just slide back and forth to go up or down for the volume and then you've got rotary knobs for the temperature control uh you know for the dual zone temperature controls uh the seats are comfortable um you know lots of lots of adjustability and you know one feature that the the seats at least the driver's seat has that i always appreciate is uh adjustable thigh support um you know i on so many vehicles i find you know the the thigh support coming up you know in the middle of my thighs you know just, the seat just the seat cushion just feels too short and so i like to be able to extend that out and and this is one car that's got that oh and one other one other thing about the seats that i you know that's uh unique to cadillac that i really like is um the warnings for you know the parking sensors and the lane departure warning uh, instead of a beep it vibrates you get a haptic feedback through the seat cushion yep so you know if you're drifting off to the left you'll feel the feedback on your on your left thigh or you know to the right on your right thigh or if you're getting you know when you're parking if you're getting too close uh, you know you'll feel the feedback on one side or the other just to excuse me to give you a direct physical feedback that's not that's not perceptible to others other occupants in the vehicle yeah and that's uh, that was one of the things that when they debuted that system seemed really logical you know it's it you're gonna pay attention to that faster than a beep that you know is only auditory you know some cars have the steering wheels that vibrate too like there's yeah that's okay um uh, did it have a head-up display? I love head-up displays. It does. It does have a head-up display, and it's it's a full color HUD. Uh, so you know it shows you know different different features. You know, so you'll see, for example, the you know the cruise control, the adaptive cruise control, you know, will be in in green, and the speedometer uh, readout is in blue. 
Um, you get, um, you know, if you're using Android Auto or CarPlay, you know, it'll show you what you're listening to. You, you can actually, you know, swipe through different different displays, get a tack on there, get get different uh, information up there. You know, so it shows you um, shows you what you're listening to um, or if a call is coming in, you can see who's calling you, that sort of thing. So, you know, there, it's got a lot of good information in there. So it's it's that that's you know, there's a lot of things that are really well executed on this vehicle. Yeah, I, I think that they've really cleaned up the style because that when they moved the SRX to the um, uh, what is it, Theta that it's on now, um, you know, back in 2009. Yeah. Uh, it was the right move. It got kind of awkward and ugly. Like they did the best they could. Um, and it, it, it looks OK, but it looks really weird from some angles. Um, but whatever, it, it sold much, much better, uh, which was the whole point. And yeah, this- well, the, the first one, the first generation one actually had, I thought, had some more peculiar proportions, you know, because it was kind of long. Yeah. And, and narrow. And I, I always thought it looked a little odd. Uh, so you know, I think I, I I preferred the second generation. Oh, but there we go. We've got we've got. But, but I like this one. I like this one on. even better. I mean, <laughs> so out of out of the three generations, this this is my favorite of the three. Yeah, I think they've they, and that was where I was going was they've really uh, brought it together. It it does look really good. They've done a great job styling it. Um, so it does it stands out. Uh, and the the problem that I, from my completely uninformed perspective can see is like they're they're just not they're not telling enough people about it uh and that's that's the advertising side of things coming out it's just i don't think that they're they're really yeah there's there's not a lot of awareness of this of this vehicle and you know i think part of the problem was that whole um change in naming strategy when they went uh from you know they went from the srx you know, to XT5, you know, as they've been renaming these vehicles, you know, as they redesign them, um, you know, it's like the, the names, you know, having alphanumeric names have, has no inherent meaning anyway. You know, and then when you keep changing it, it just it only makes it worse. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's starting to come together. I get it. Like XT. OK, so XT is going to be the Cadillac crossover slash truck things, except for the Escalade, which they're going to leave alone because they should leave it alone because they hate it, but they love it at the same time. Uh, <laughs> so fine. But the there's this weird uh, messaging for Cadillac going on. I don't I, they're, they're like they're trying to attract a much uh, younger sort of cosmopolitan uh, buyer, which I, I mean, sure, because those are people with money, but. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're the really... ones more likely to buy a vehicle in this segment. Yeah, I don't know how much they're they're hitting the mark, and um, it's just kind of off-putting to to me that I, I don't know. I'm not getting it, and yeah. that, that's fine. Maybe it's not getting to me, so I'm not seeing it. Maybe they're just being brilliant about where they they put their messaging so that it shows up to the right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the if there's people. I don't know if there's much um, TV advertising for Cadillac these days. You know, we we don't have we we cut the cord last year mm. and so I, I never see tv with ads anymore um so i don't know if they're doing much tv advertising or, or what the advertising looks like i think the last cadillac ad i saw was uh their super bowl ad from was it 2015 or 14 um or i think there was wasn't there like just one word i can't even remember what it I was don't now remember I don't know. Yeah. I, I it, mean, it I tend matter. to. I'll, so I'll watch. Yeah, I'll watch broadcasts and I'll see a couple of spots for it. But it, and, you know, it's it's fine. You know, whatever. Maybe it's getting to the right people, I guess. Uh, it's just it's a weird position. You know, they're 
you you can't it, it's going to be hard to sell a car to people who want to live in Brooklyn because you don't really need a car in Brooklyn. I I mean, yeah. you sort of do, but not like you know what I'm saying. Like, no, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, owning owning a vehicle in a dense urban environment is is problematic, you know, and that you know that kind of gets us into you know the the next topic of discussion for this evening. Well, then let's is, pivot. Let's, all right, let's, let's pivot into and back <laughs> back to autonomous vehicles again. Um, you know, and uh, and and um, autonomous uh, mobility services. Yeah, you know, and I I wrote a a blog post for our company blog. You know, I, I'm an analyst. My day job is an analyst with Navigant Research, um, and we you know we have a blog where all the all the analysts contribute to. And uh, I wrote a blog post the other day, um, you know, uh, looking at you know what some of the um, announcements we've seen in the uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, that autonomous ride hailing, you know, could uh, could mark the revival of the minivan, uh, you know, because we we saw you know um, Waymo, uh, formerly Google Cars, and uh, FCA roll out their their fleet of autonomous uh, Pacificas that they've put together, and and Waymo starting development on those, um, you know, and um, Honda is going to be showing off uh, next generation Odyssey uh, next or a couple of weeks at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, sometime in 2017, we'll probably also see a next generation uh, Toyota Sienna minivan. Um, you know, and it, it seems like you know with some of the things going on that you know the the minivan actually makes a lot of sense for you know these autonomous ride hailing services i mean it's a it's a form factor that um you know just it's it, i think it works it's the right kind of form factor for that what they want to use these vehicles for which is you know having you know basically robo taxis because you know you've got a vehicle that is inherently um easy to get in and out of uh you know which you know for a vehicle that is going to be picking up passengers and and dropping them off uh you know it that can work really well. And, um, you know, Ford, you know, they've, they've been doing some of their work in, in ride hailing and, and mobility services, you know, here in, in Dearborn, they're using uh, Ford transits for their dynamic shuttle service that they have around their product development campus. Um, you know, out in San Francisco, they bought a company called chariot that also uses transits for, you know, uh, an on-demand um, sort of mini bus service. Um, you know, and so all, all these all these uh, different platforms are are using uh, various types of vans, which I think you know it. If you're, you know, part of you know the van, the the van, especially the minivan, makes so much sense as a vehicle when you've got to move a bunch of people. It makes so much more sense than an SUV or a crossover. Yeah. You know, but it's it's been. It, it's got it got this reputation, you know, as the soccer mom mobile. You know, nobody nobody wanted to be seen driving a minivan. Um, you know, so everybody moved from minivans to utilities. Um, but now, if you're not actually going to be driving it, if you're just riding in it to get from one place to another, you know, then why do you care? You know, if it's shaped like an SUV or shaped like a van. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, you know when Ford rolls out their dedicated autonomous vehicle in 2021 for ride hailing services if it's actually you know i wouldn't be surprised if it's based on you know something more like the uh, the transit connect uh rather than the fusion that they're using for development today yeah well that makes perfect sense i mean fleets care most about efficiency not style so uh you know the minivan packs the most people into the same footprint it's 
more efficient on fuel. Um, that may be a little bit more marginal than, than it used to be when we, they were truck-based SUVs. But, um, you know, fleets are going to buy what's going to return on their investment the fastest. And if it's nice enough inside and has the amenities that the riders are looking for, it, it makes perfect sense. You know, you can get more people in a single vehicle uh, for, you know, however many rides you're going to do and, and stuff and all of that, you know, if, it, if you need cargo space and things like that. So it makes sense sure. to me. Yeah. And, you know, even even in New York, you know, where they're in the process of transitioning to the so-called taxi of tomorrow, you know, they're replacing all of the old um, sedans, the, the Crown Victorias and, uh, you know, all the other sedans um, that they've been using for the last, you know, several decades with um, the uh, Nissan NV200s uh, as their new taxis. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, at some point in the early 2020s, we start to see autonomous versions of these uh, start to hit the streets in places like New York. Yeah. And the NV that's, that's sort of like the most, uh, like a shining example of what you would want if you were a fleet buyer too. It's a very simple car because uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be anything other than a simple car. It's got, I think it's got a beam axle so that most of that load space is just clear floor. Um, and it's, it's efficient. It, it's not all that big, but it's definitely roomy. Um, it's very well thought out. It's, it's also terrible. And, and, and sliding and, <laughs> and, and sliding doors, you yeah. know, which makes it easy to get in and out of, you know, without having to worry about anybody driving by and taking the door off. Yeah. Well, and the thing too, like you're going to need some way, uh, if you're creating an autonomous fleet, you're going to need some way to accommodate folks with wheelchairs or, um, you know, other mobility solutions like the, uh, the motorized carts and things. And so a minivan actually makes that proposition a lot easier they're lower to the ground than a crossover they do they have the sliding doors on the side they have a large lift gate in the back that has a low load height so it, all of those things actually you know make the case a lot more effectively for something that's a van yeah and speaking of autonomous vans uh there's another one that we're going to be seeing uh at the detroit auto show uh from volkswagen um uh, no yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, keep going, keep going. <laughs> okay, so you know they they put out a, a teaser image of uh, uh, what they're going to be showing, you know, which is you know it it looks like it's it's got some hints of uh, the design of the old microbus, you know, and I mean they, they, you know Volkswagen has done I don't know how many microbus style concepts over the last fifteen years that I've seen. Right, and that you know, was and, my complaint. <laughs> right, it's like you know, but I think this time they might actually really build it. Um, you know, because it's it's based on the same um, MEB uh, dedicated electric vehicle platform that, the, you know, the ID concept that they showed in Frankfurt last September. Um, and, you know, so it's using that platform, uh, which, you know, again, low floor battery, you know, pack under the floor. Um, and, you know, they've said that, you know, it's being designed for autonomous capability uh, in the early 2020s. And, you know, VW has been making other announcements in other parts of the world about their investments in mobility services. So, you know, again, you know, I think this is the kind of vehicle that we're going to see for those services. Uh, yeah, um, I think for the rest of the world, it's probably an easier sell for Volkswagen here. You know, we haven't had a Volkswagen minivan in, in quite a while. Uh, Volkswagen has a lot of other the last stuff. one. They, the last one they sold was a Chrysler. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, which I mean, it was pretty nice, too. I kind of liked the changes that made it the Rutan, but e even so, um, 
they've got a lot of other stuff to deal with in this market. Um, it's, you know, keep keep looking at the future, I guess. But it's a real uphill battle to, to just, you know, there's the getting adoption of uh of of volkswagen in the first place is gonna be tough um for uh even a fleet operator right unless they cut them an incredible deal like that's just it's a or they operate their own fleet which you know i mean like sure we've talked about this before you know that i think that you know going forward you know probably by the mid-2020s you won't have independent fleet operators you know they these these autonomous fleets are going to be run by the car companies by the car makers themselves well, if it takes out Uber, I'm all for it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Uber, you know, and they're, um, you know, they, they're privately held, so they don't officially report, um, you know, their their finances. But, you know, their their latest, um, you know, the latest report on their uh, most, you know, in the third quarter, you know, speculated that they lost, you know, about a billion and a half dollars in the third quarter. You know, they've lost more than three billion dollars, you know, just in 2016 uh, through nine months. So, you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough market for, you know, companies that are just trying to do, you know, this, uh, do these kinds of platforms, you know, you need, you need some other way to, to make the money. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, I mean, Uber is crazily overvalued, so it's fine. Continue to lose money. Maybe you'll lose until you can make a profit. There's certainly profit yeah. to be made there. I just, yeah, I know. just don't think, I just don't think it's, you know, with companies where this is their sole business, you know, I think, I think they're going to have to have, other revenue streams, you know, and, and other ways of, of making money. I think the, the vertical integration is going to be necessary. Yeah. Which is weird though, because when you consider that, like basically what we're doing, uh, I mean, I was going to say basically what we're doing is we're replacing the taxi fleet, but really we're, we're sort of overbuilding public transportation and public transportation is something that's chronically losing money, um, which is, it's probably a much better analog for this than, than the taxi industry, which manages to offer a service and stay in business uh, with well, just that I single think, service. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, a big part of the reason why mass transit, you know, is often a money loser is because of underutilization on a lot of the routes. You know, so you've got, you often have vehicles that are too big, for the amount for the demand of service that there is um and there's not enough flexibility in those services right. that's true i yeah. guess that makes sense because when you de when you design for like max capacity right like you design so that your system can can handle the times when it needs to have that maximum capacity but there's really you're only you're, you're limited especially with something like trains right you can take cars off the rails at certain times but you you're limited to how much dynamically you can shrink that capacity so you've always got a fixed amount of capacity for a variable amount of demand that kind of sucks yeah i can see how that loses right. money you know and, and i think you know there's there's always going to be certain you know in, in big cities there's always going to be certain high density routes where you know the traditional mass style of mass transit with either trains or buses you know will work and, and makes a lot of sense you know where you've got enough ridership there to to get an, to generate enough revenue to to be profitable you know, and then for all the other routes, you know, shifting towards, you know, replacing the traditional mass transit with, um, you know, a combination of various sizes of autonomous mobility services, um, you know, or or even in, even in some cases, not necessarily autonomous. You know, it can it can all still be human driven, but just having more flexibility in the fleet um, 
both in terms of, of routes uh, and, you know, the, the types of vehicles, you know, then I, I think you can optimize it a lot better than we've traditionally done. All right. So maybe Volkswagen is going to introduce a vehicle and then they'll introduce a service. And uh, yeah, or maybe they're just going to tease us. Who knows? Well, you know, like I said, you know, the, like most of the other big automakers, you know, VW's got investments in, you know, various ride hailing and car sharing services in, in various parts of the world. You know, they've got a big investment in a, in a European company called Get. Um, and there, there's another uh, one that they're launching that they're developing in-house. I think it's called Movia. Um, that is going to be launching in 2018. So, you know, they're, they're all, every big car maker is looking at these kinds of services. It's, you know, when you get right down to it, it's just, it's like this full circle thing of the auto industry that came out of the train industry. That's just like, at least in the U S like that's, that's why the automakers were in Detroit is because, you know, all the, the, the railroad industry was there, all the, 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 you know, the service yards and, and stuff where the, the foundries, everything was there. So it's just coming around again. So, yep. Uh, all right. Um, so we just, do we stay on autonomy? Do we want to move on to something else or uh, let's, more. let's talk about, uh, well, one, one, one last thing uh, about autonomy. You know, I mentioned Ford earlier and, you know, my thought that, you know, they're, they're likely their vehicle that they're going to their autonomous vehicle that they said they're going to introduce in 2021 is probably going to be something based on either the C-Max or the Transit Connect. Um, I think you know, right now, though, before they get there, they've still got to f do more development. And they're um, right now they're building up a second fleet of their second generation of their fusion autonomous prototypes. Um, they're tripling the size of their test fleet from 30 vehicles to 90 vehicles in 2017. And um, they're, uh, their their new their new fleet uh, their their second gen models uh, they're doing some more optimization on the sensor package uh, so now instead of having the four sensors mount four lidar sensors on the roof like the ones we've we've probably seen previously um, they're now going down to just two uh, lidar sensors with uh, Velodyne's latest one that looks like a hockey puck um, uh, coming off you know two of them off of uh, each of the a pillars you know looking kind of like the uh, the original Ferrari Testarossa rearview mirrors um, and then a couple of roof racks uh, with three cameras in each of the roof racks uh, so it'll be be interesting to see how those uh, perform going into 2017 and beyond so why if they're going to transition off the the fusion to actually roll things out why are they um using it as a development platform i mean i realize the software will be sort of portable but yeah well i think one of the big reasons is and you know there's um they've got a blog post that's uh coming out on medium uh it'll be out uh, tomorrow as we're recording this but um it they, they one of they mentioned one of the things in there and uh, this applies to a lot of the companies that are developing autonomous systems. You notice that a lot of them are using um, hybrid or, or battery electric vehicles because all of these sensors and the processing and the actuators need a lot of electrical power. And so in the, um, you know, the fusion hybrid, they've got, um, you know, they've got a high voltage electrical system. So there's enough electrical power to power all this stuff. Even with that, though, they've they've added a second um, voltage converter uh, power electronics unit. Uh, to do the voltage conversion to power all these components so that they to can ensure the um, uh, basically a redundant system to make sure they have enough power and, and that it's reliable uh, for all this stuff. So right now they don't have a hybrid version of the Transit Connect and the CMAX is a little bit 
um, too small. There's not enough cargo space for all the stuff in there. So I think that's why they're using using the fusions right now. I see. And I mean, that brings up a couple of points, right? Like that may change when we go to 48 volts on, you know, most cars, mm-hmm. maybe not. Um, but the, the other thing is uh, reading about further down in the post, they talk about how it sees and it uses its, its LIDAR to continuously scan and stuff. Um, my, my concern about this is just like what happens when those sensors get iced up? Like what happens in the snow? Does the thing just stop? And uh, what are they doing to, to sort of get around that? I mean, I, I know that there's, you, you could use GPS, but GPS is only accurate to like 16 feet, roughly. Um, there's, they, there's a brand new European system that's continuing to be rolled out. That's you know going to be accurate, much more accurate. You know, can you, can you use that? Um, to actually position the car when it, it can't use its its local sensors or you know, what, you know, what what's their what's their play? I mean, it's just like we're in winter. Like, how does this thing get around in a snowstorm? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, what <laughs> you know, one of the things they mentioned in the the blog post is that um, they're uh, you know they're, they're in addition to the lidar and the cameras, they've got short and long range sensor uh, radar sensors. Um, you know, and the radar sensors can see through, you know, through falling snow, but, or fog, but, you know, the, the problem there is, you know, as long as the, the snow is not an ice and salt and slush is not building up on the window covering the sensor itself, right? you know, in which case then it becomes blind. Um, and the same thing applies to the LIDAR sensors, um, and the cameras, you know, when they get covered up with, uh, you know, with salt and, and road crud, they're going to be blind as well. And so that's something that, you know, at least on the vehicles we've seen so far um, has not been addressed. You know, I, I've talked to engineers from a lot of different companies and they're working, they're, they're trying to develop solutions to keep those things clean uh, and keep them clear so they can see. But, you know, one of the, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, using the GPS uh, and it's lack of precision uh, for something like autonomous driving and, you know, um, they're they're actually going to be relying more on the sensors than on GPS for the navigation, you know, for localizing the vehicle, figuring out where the vehicle is on the road using high definition maps, you know, that have, you know, the static objects that are along the road, you know, uh, overpasses and buildings and so on. And using that, using the sensors to compare what what the sensors see to what it, what's on the map and figure out where the car is on the road, you know, triangulate off those static objects. Oh, you mean like a person um, does? That's terrifying. Yeah, just <laughs> like... just like a person. Um, <laughs> so they, you know, it's going to be essential that they come up with reliable solutions that keep these sensors clean so they can see. Otherwise, they're just going to stop dead in their tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, we'll, we'll they'll, they'll solve it eventually. I'm just eventually. Curious. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I have no I have no doubt they will sooner or later come up with a solution. I mean, I've seen one solution from one company uh, that uh, I can't can't really talk about yet. You know, that has, you know, wiper blades that uh, uh, come up out of the roof and sweep around the, the LIDAR sensor to, to clean it. Um, so, but we'll see how, uh, you know, how robust a solution that is or, you know, if anybody comes up with something better. Yeah, they're going to have to have like the, the automated hand that can reach out and snap the wiper blade, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why that, that's actually why they have it. Uh, so it retracts down underneath cover. So it's not covered. It doesn't get iced up. Doesn't you know, when it needs to clean, it comes up and sweeps around the sensor and then retracts back down, you know, into a covered space. 
Um, cause yeah, you're right. I mean, anybody that's driven in winter conditions knows that, you know, you get ice that builds up on the rubber blades and, you know, then those don't work either. And, uh, you know, it's just, then yeah. you, then you just got to wing it and pretend, you know, where you're going. Yeah. I mean, you just said, just point and just like, you know, aim the car and just, you know, take it, take it for the best. The yeah. Just hope for the best. All right. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think the other thing that you had, uh, put in here about self-driving was the, uh, the tantrum that Uber threw. Uh, with their self-driving cars, uh, they called up Auto to put their self-driving Volvos on self-driving Volvos and drive them to uh, another state. Um, that was entertaining to watch, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a PR stunt by Uber. Uh, you know, the, basically, you know, the, the state of California said, "Look, you've got to pay for this uh, permit uh, for testing self-driving cars." Uh, and, and part of that process when you apply for that permit for testing is you all, the companies doing the testing are also required to report back in to the state, you know, when um, all of the you know, any incidents that they have with the cars and uh, any disengagements that they have where, where humans actually have to take over from the autonomous system. Uh, and I think that's probably part of why Uber didn't, you know, I mean, you know, $150, you know, for the fee for the registration fee is peanuts, um, right. you know, but I think it's just that they didn't want to report any of the data back to the state, like all the other car makers do. Cause that's right. That's been some of the chatter is, uh, you know, reading through the Jalopnik post that, that we were kind of using um, for our rundown is, you know, some of the chatter is that it's just California being greedy and business hostile and, you know, asking for tribute, basically like pay us the money and you can do your thing. But really the, the, the permit itself is not, I mean, it's a pittance. It's it's not it's it's very small money. It's uh, so it seems like it's the really reporting the, requirements right. that are more of the issue. The issue and, is, you know, I mean, and, that, and I think that's perfectly legitimate, you know, on the part of the state. They want to understand, you know, how these systems are working, you know, so that they can figure out what, if any, regulations, you know, they're going to need on these. You know, how, how do you regulate these vehicles? You know, once we start to deploy them for real. Yeah, well, I mean, at a certain point the 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 state works for the people and not, not for the corporations. And I realize that, you know, like corporations are people too, whatever. Thanks, Mitt. What? But still <laughs> like, you know, you, you can't put private enterprise. Uh, you you out, clearly haven't been roads. paying attention, Dan. Yeah, I, I know. Um, I, I, it, and it this, is, this is, this is a corporatocracy now. <laughs> we should have a different political podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I, not that I disagree. Um, we're, but there are issues, you know, if you don't want to, to, to stifle or chill the the uh, development of, of, you know, private enterprise. Um, and, you know, this no, stuff I, needs to happen. Absolutely but. not. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm the last one who would say that, you know, we should stifle this stuff. You know, I, I think that, you know, to to the degree possible, you know, you need to take as much of a hands off approach, you know, in terms of regulating this stuff right now. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be monitoring it and, right. and watching what's happening and keeping, keeping tabs on, on what's happening, how well these systems are really working, you know, to make sure that we're actually getting some benefit out of these things before we start allowing these things out, you know, in regular use. Right. I mean, wasn't it the patron saint of the corporatocracy, um, you know, uh, oligarchs uh, to say trust, but verify that's what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyway, let's let's move but, on. But, but, but by today's <laughs> standards, he would be considered a socialist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, just to, to finish off that that topic, you know, the 
in order to get those vehicles off the road, the state of California ended up rescinding the vehicle registrations. You know, so they, they basically took the license plates away from these vehicles and said, you cannot drive these vehicles on California roads anymore. And so they, they trucked them off to Arizona where the governor uh, had put out a, a little tweet storm saying, bring your cars here and test them, do whatever you want here. We don't care. You know? Well, you know, I mean, so first of all, there's Arizona is a lot less dense population wise. I, uh, you know, there's just not that many people. Um, well, uh, like the city of Phoenix is, is pretty dense. I mean, that's they're, a, that's a pretty right. dense urban area and that's where they're going to be testing. Yeah. I mean, is it as dense and, and this because Uber before they were testing in what, uh, San Francisco area, right? Like, yeah, no, uh, Phoenix, you know, Phoenix is, uh, you know, it's a, it's much a dense urban area as any other major city. You know, it's, it's going to, you know, it doesn't have some of the challenges of San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco has some unique geography, you know, yeah, for sure. Uh, w- without a doubt, you know, in terms of the hills and the types of roads, but in terms of the, uh, the urban density, um, you know, I think that Phoenix is probably uh, just as much, if not, if not uh, worse, you know, than, uh, than San Francisco. All right. Well, we made it through that whole piece without, you know, turning density around into a pejorative statement. So I'm proud of myself. <laughs> um, you know, the, the uh, other thing that I put in the rundown was that, um, you know, we, we talked about Tesla and, and it, we, you know, they're sort of like because we're talking about the future of transportation, we talk about them on an ongoing basis. But one of the things that we come up against with Tesla is their their ability to scale. And they're at this awkward point in their development where they, you know, they, they were a premium thing. They had the Roadster. They had the, the Model S. Um, now they're adding more models. And, you know, as they do that, some of the perks as they really become a full fledged mainstream automaker, uh, some of the perks those premiums uh that you know model s owners have enjoyed like the free access to the supercharger fleet uh, or network is gonna have to be trimmed um you know you're gonna have to pay now beginning january 1st you're gonna have to pay to the superchargers once you've exhausted uh your your thousand miles worth of charging credits so that's that's new and uh, that are you know are we how are they going to handle that? And, and do you do you think that they're they're going to have difficulty with this or, you know, they're they're just they're dealing with the like, hey, we're growing. We're you know our product is taken off. And these are just it's just some of the stuff that you're, you're going to have to deal with the infrastructure. You know, there's a lot of you know competition for spaces at the superchargers now. And so we're going to have to start charging people. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 fundamental problem, um, you know, when they first started rolling out the superchargers a few years ago, you know, they uh, said, you know, this is going to be free, you know, for all Model S owners and then later for Model X owners, um, you know, fast DC charging, uh, which was great, um, you know, but it was it was always intended to be an enabler for long distance driving. You know, so, you know, they started building out a network of supercharger stations, you know, across the country on some of the major routes, you know, starting with some of the major interstate routes, you know, and then gradually expanding out to, to other other routes. You know, so you have a, a number of options, you know, if you want to drive cross country or drive long distances in a Tesla, um, you know, so the the problem, you know, where, where the real problem lies is not in those um, those stations that are out along these routes um it's in the in the urban areas where you know there's a high density of these vehicles and um you know so what ends up happening is you know where you've got a lot of vehicles people want to use the the stations and you know so they'll go 
park it in a supercharger and then go off and do some shopping or have a meal or, or whatever. Um, yeah, and so, you know some of these stations. You know, uh, like for example, there's there's one I know of in Los Angeles that's in the parking lot of a of a major mall. Um, you know, other ones you know are in in various locations where um, you know there's there's a lot of people around, and it's it's actually a relatively small proportion of the stations that are the problem. You know, but people will go and park their car and leave it there for you know two, three, four hours. And, you know, if there's only six charging spots, um, you know, people, other people come along and they want to charge. Uh, and, you know, there's there's no there's no plugs available. Basically, it's it's like like it used to be in airports. You know, when you're traveling, if you wanted to top up your your laptop or your phone before you got on the plane, you know, you'd you'd, you'd be hunting around, you know, looking in corners for an outlet to plug into. Uh, before you got on the plane, you know, fortunately now, you know, they've have, they have a lot more charging, uh, you know, char- charging outlets, you know, in most major airports. Uh, but for, for Tesla, you know, it's, it's a, it's become a real problem, you know, and, um, about a year ago, you know, we first heard about, uh, Tesla sending out a letter to owners, um, saying that, Hey, you know, you're only supposed to be using the superchargers for long distance driving. You're not supposed to use it for local driving you know, because a lot of people, you know, would go to their nearest supercharger and, and top up their cars instead of charging them at home. So it's, it's uh, less of a bait and switch than it seems then it's just kind of uh, Hey, we're going to do this thing to maybe realign the utilization of this network to what we intend it to be. Right. You know, I mean, it, it is, it is kind of a, bait and switch Uh, i don't think it was a deliberate bait and switch um you know i think it was they just they didn't really anticipate how people would end up using them and i think that they they didn't you know especially for the stations that are closer to urban areas or you know where there's a lot of density of these vehicles um you know they they probably um didn't really think carefully enough about how this whole process was going to scale. Yeah. And especially now, you know, as, as we're getting closer, you know, uh, to launching the model three, you know, which is supposed to be a really high volume vehicle, it's going to be even more of a problem. So, you know, what they're doing now is they're starting to charge, um, customers for leaving their cars plugged in after it's been, after that's, it's fully charged. So I think you have like five minutes of grace period after the battery is full, uh, before you have to move the car. And then after that, they start charging you 40 cents a minute uh, for parking the car Holy there, crap. which can get a, <laughs> that can get expensive really fast. Yeah, but Tesla, Tesla owners are rich. They're just not going to care. <laughs> well, Model, Model S owners are, are fairly affluent, Model X owners. But, you know, when you start talking about Model 3 owners, right. that's not necessarily going to be the case. I mean, I know I know a number of people that have ordered Model 3s that, um, you know, are not, you know, they're not wealthy, you know, and. But of course, you know, they're not going to have free charging anyway. You know, they're going to have, you know, I think Model 3, um, they're, you know, you're going to, you're not even going to get any free charging. I think uh, S and X owners will get a thousand, a thousand miles a year right. of charging for free. And then, uh, then they have to pay. And I think Model 3 owners are going to have to pay um, up front. You know, they don't get any free charging. Right. Should have, you know, sh- should have climbed out of the bargain basement, folks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, I mean, that's uh, something that we're going to see too. Like the, the, they've got, they've got the sort of most established thing going. So we'll see how that that all shakes out. Um, it, 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 well, there's one, there's one other problem that Tesla has, you know, that is kind of potentially self-inflicted, and um, you know, that's the fact that 
you know, they have a pr- proprietary charging connector that yeah. no other manufacturer can use. And I mean, you know, when you buy a Tesla, it comes with an adapter so you can plug it into a standard, um, you know, seven J seventeen seventy two charging connector like everybody else uses. Uh, but um, you know, right now, uh, the only if you want fast charging, the only way you can do that with a Tesla is from a supercharger. So um, they're you know their uh, their adapter does not support the uh, DC fast charging networks for the standard connectors. Uh, which are now starting to roll out. And I think, uh, you know, there's right now there's about half as many of those as there are um, superchargers uh, in the U S and by the end of 2017, the number will be getting pretty close to even, you know, if they, if Tesla was using the standard connector, then those owners would have the option of using, you know, all those other chargers as well. Yeah. And that's, sort of the same kind of thing like it's that hubris thing that we see with like apple you know the <laughs> the the macbook pro they just redesigned it and that it, it's so frustrating because they they took all the pro features away like now it doesn't have any <laughs> ports on it and there's no sd card slots and you know it's like well who uses those things well professionals use it's them. all going to be wireless now right or, or the whole like well the market will sort it out the market will come up with those solutions for us and okay, okay sure but in the meantime you're really going to frustrate the people who bought your thing um, I don't know. I mean, it's, this is it's it's a little bit wild west, but we'll we'll see how it gets there. I mean, at least they're not like Faraday Future, which clearly looks like it's imploding, <laughs> and kind of sort of a slow motion supernova. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be real interesting. I'm heading out to CES uh, next week in Las Vegas, and um, I've got an invite to uh, the the big reveal of their production model. What do you think that's um, going to be like? That because all the stories over the last couple of weeks have just been like, what a complete mess it is. Yeah, it's uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see if uh, if that event even comes off. Um, I, I suspect it probably will. How long they last beyond that uh, is anybody's guess. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, the, the guy, the main investor, uh, this is not his only venture that's just completely underwater monetarily. So, it, yeah, there's there's a lot of good work out there about it. Uh, Jalopnik actually had a really good post um, about yeah. it. Uh, I guess it was like a week and a half ago um, that really sort of dove into some of the things. And there's actually uh, the same owner has two different electric car companies and Faraday Future basically guaranteed the loan for the other one. So if they default on the other loan, Faraday Future's holding the bag. They were put up as collateral, basically. It's it's kind of messy. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, you know, it's yeah, it, it's really messy. And, uh, you know, it, it's a shame because, you know, I, I know I know some of the people that have gone to work at Faraday Future. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of really smart people and, you know, a, a very high proportion, you know, of their um, their staff right now, you know, are engineers you know, and a lot of really smart engineers. So, you know, it's not like they've, you know, like they've got, you know, a huge a huge amount of their staff dedicated to things like PR and marketing, at least not so far since they have nothing to market yet. Um, <laughs> That's what but, you're supposed to, you're supposed to have nothing to market and market the hell out of nothing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, pe- people like Pete Savagian who left GM uh, earlier this year to go there, you know, to um, I think he's like uh, their head of vehicle engineering or powertrain engineering, um, you know, and, uh, Merritt Johnson, who right. way back in the day, she uh, she wrote for Autoblog for a while. Right. Um, you know, and she used to be an engineer at GM, and then was at Honeywell, and now she's at uh, at Faraday. So you know, there's there's a lot of really smart people there. You know, 
that I'm sure are doing a lot of really good work. Um, and it, it's a shame to see, you know, a company apparently so utterly mismanaged, um, you know, and squandering, you know, this opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how it shakes out, you know, from from the, the ashes of one will rise to something else, too. Like it's it's no less messy than the, the early 20th century in terms of, of automobile development. It's just a you know new chapter, really. Um, so it, it'll all sort of. Yeah, I mean, at, the, at the beginning of the industry, there were thousands of car makers in this country. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think we've we've chewed on that uh, quite a bit. Uh, we didn't have any questions this week from what I could see, unless you have something in your back pocket. Uh, no, I did not see anything come into the, uh, the inbox. Uh, so, you know, send, yeah, send, you know, send us your, uh, comments, questions at, uh, wheelbearingscast at gmail.com, um, or on the, the Twitter at, uh, wheelbearingcast, uh, drop the vowels, um, uh, or on our Facebook page. Right. Um, yeah. And we're, we're around, obviously, uh, your, your Twitter handle is at Sam Abel Samid. Mine is, uh, at Boston underscore auto. Um, yeah, there are ways to catch us. So yeah, chime in questions, comments, all of those things. Uh, and we'll do one more, I think, uh, right before it may not post before the end of the year. Uh, so there'll just be one more that we record, um, right before uh 2017 so uh with that i think we we should uh, wrap it up and and uh head to bed because it's late <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and you know make sure you tell all your friends to listen to the show yeah exactly and just send money tens and twenties <laughs> yes <laughs> unmarked please Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.